Mark chapter 11. That's page 1015 in the Church Bibles and page 1576 in the large print. Mark chapter 11. And we're going to be in verses 1 through to verse 25 this evening. Well, when I used to work in IT, I would work around in different companies. And often these companies were quite large and would have uh, thousands of people in there. And there were times when in these companies they would tell you that the director was coming to visit or one of the directors or one of the deputies. And on these occasions we were told very clearly that we had to make sure that our desks were absolutely clear of any paperwork. We were told we weren't allowed to eat at our desks which was a real blow for me because that's what I used to spend a lot of my time doing. We were told we had to wear a tie We had to talk quietly, and if we did talk, we had to be careful about what we say and make sure it was only work business. And the director would come round and would talk to us, and even if we didn't believe what we were saying, we would have to say how wonderful the company was that we were working for. And boy, if they had opened my drawer, (laughs) or seen underneath, or sometimes if they'd have read my mind, my contracts would have been terminated immediately. Now, I don't believe for one second that those directors that came on the site believed that the companies were as wonderful as they came across to be. But they seemed happy enough if they appeared to be so. If everything looked good when they came, they went away quite happy, usually with a nice lunch, I suppose, as well, which sometimes I got to go on. But I hated these kind of visits because they were just so fake. Well, in tonight's passage, we see that Jesus is not like a director that doesn't care about what's going on underneath the surface. Jesus isn't just happy to look at an outward show of goodness. He's interested in seeing the substance of our hearts and where their focus is. And when he goes to his temple, as we'll see tonight, He doesn't care for the outward show. He cares about what's really going on in their hearts. As we come to Mark chapter 11, we come to a new section of Mark's Gospel. In this Gospel, Mark appears to speed through much of it. We focus, as we said at the beginning, on the work of Jesus rather than the words. The focus is more on what Jesus does. But in Mark chapter 11, we slow down because the last third of his Gospel is based on the last week of Jesus' life. And in chapter 11, we come to the first event, if you like, of the Passion Week, Palm Sunday, or the Triumphal Entry. And Jesus, up to this point, since chapter 9 and verse 30, has been on his way to Jerusalem. And up to now, you may have noticed in the Gospel that when Jesus does a miracle or or something um, like the the, uh, Transfiguration, he would tell people to keep quiet about what was happening. Keep quiet about what he has done and about who he is. But today, as he comes into Jerusalem, we see that the secret is out. Jesus is declaring himself to be 
the Messiah King. And as he rides into Jerusalem, we see that he very deliberately makes these connections with the Old Testament to show who he is. And when we look at this, we'll see that he's very obviously saying, I am the king. I am your king. And he goes to his temple. And we'll see there that he doesn't appreciate what he finds and tries to show us the right way to worship. So we see the king and his temple. And we see this, first of all, in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. So let's read that together. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now in the beginning of this passage, the actions seem a little bit like one of those spy films where there's a, a secret phrase that must be said in order to release a donkey. And although this is not some spy film, the actions Jesus takes are deliberate and planned. And there are lots of key words in this passage that are used to link back to the Old Testament. And when the Jews saw what was happening, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying because they had been brought up with this. Now on the screen, uh, there's going to be lots of references. I would say don't look them up because there's lots of them. But if you want them, I can give you them afterwards. Okay? But just to highlight where they are and what Jesus is referring to. So the first thing we see when Jesus approaches Jerusalem with his entourage of 12 disciples and others that were following him is that he came via the Mount of Olives. And in Zechariah chapter 14, we read of the king coming via the Mount of Olives. And Zechariah is writing about the future second return of Christ. But the fact that he came via the Mount of Olives was a reference to this, to the people. It is where the king comes from. It is also interesting to note that up to this point in Jesus' ministry, he walked everywhere. But now, at this moment, he decides he needs a colt to ride on. Now, Jesus' legs haven't stopped working. The Bible doesn't tell us he twisted his ankle on the way into Jerusalem. He is not injured. It's a planned, deliberate, public act so that people will see him coming as king. King David rode a donkey. And King Solomon, his son, rode David's donkey into Jerusalem when he became king in 1 Kings chapter 1. But of course, the prophecy that we most look back to is that one in Zechariah that we read, that Jesus is coming on a donkey 
into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he's not a warrior king. He doesn't come on a stallion. A king that came on a stallion was a king that was coming to conquer. A king riding a donkey came in peace. And Jesus is the king who brings peace. Peace between man and God. We see that the donkey was one that has not been ridden on. That's the wrong bit, sorry. The one that has not been ridden on, that's the one. <laughs> and in the Old Testament, when a donkey has, or an animal had not been used, it was a reference to it being set apart as holy for the Lord. And it's interesting that when Jesus asked for that donkey, he used the word Lord to refer to himself. He says, the Lord needs it. And those words, tie and untie, you may notice in the passage, the words tie and untie appear five different times. And it seems strange that Mark emphasises this word, tie and untie. But there is another connection here. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob blesses his sons and he says that the kings will come from his son Judah. Now blessings in those days were prophetic. They weren't just um, like patting the baby on the head and saying, bless you my son. It was a profession, a a prophetic uh, uh, thing to say. And in the gospel, sorry, in the book of Genesis, we read, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. All the kings came from Judah. The scepter will not depart. David came from this tribe. All his sons came from this tribe. And Jesus did too. And a donkey tied up was part of the blessing and the Jews would have taken this as a sign of the Messiah. Jesus too, from this tribe, the king coming on the donkey, untying. It's a reference back to Genesis. Another thing you'll notice was that they threw cloaks over the donkey. And of course this was done in the Old Testament too where in 2 Kings chapter 9, King Jehu came uh, as king of Israel, actually. And there was uh, cloaks thrown in submission to him. It was a sign of submission. Others, it says, spread branches on the road. John tells us that they were palm branches, which is where we get the phrase Palm Sunday from. And this was first done when, in the middle of the uh, Testaments, when there was a war and Judas Maccabeus won a victory for Jerusalem. And to celebrate the victory, they threw the palms down in front, a bit like the red carpet as he came in. It was a symbol of victory. And furthermore, it says that people were shouting from Psalm chapter 118, verses 25 to 26. That's where that Hosanna uh, comes from. Blessed is the uh, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. It comes from Psalm 118, and it's a psalm of victory over enemies. And of course, Hosanna, we've said, means save us now. And Jesus, at this point, wasn't telling the people to be quiet like he had done before. He accepts the praise as the saviour of the people who has come in the name of the Lord to bring the kingdom of his father, David. 
So as we look at these things, we can see how obvious Jesus is making it, that he is the king. That's why he's doing these things. He's making it clear. Now the tagline for our holiday club is, Who is this man? And if you were in Jerusalem on that day, and you were to say, well, who is that man? Everyone would be able to know exactly who he was claiming to be. This is the king. He is coming into Jerusalem. It was obvious. It would be like playing guess who and having the cards the wrong way round. It would be like playing that game, who's in the bag, where you know when you pull a name out and you have to give clues to who it is. And it would be like pulling out David Cameron and giving a clue of, well, it begins with D and ends in David Cameron. It's obvious who Jesus is. Everyone can see he is saying, I am your king. And the question you've got to ask yourself is, am I going to follow him? Throughout this gospel, we have seen the evidence of who he is. His power over nature, over disease, over demons, over death. And the power to forgive sins. And based on this evidence, we have to believe, don't we, that he is who he claims to be. Jesus is the Messiah. He is God who has come to save us from our sins. And we need to give our allegiance to him as our king. And trust that he will lead us to victory. He leads us to victory over our greatest enemy, sin and death. He paid the penalty for us. He rose from the dead and we follow him into eternal life. Is Jesus the king that you worship? Do you cry out to him with prayer and praises like these people in this passage? Are you submitting to his rule like they were demonstrating when they were throwing their cloaks before him? He made it obvious that he was the king but how easily we forget. We need to wake up each morning and declare our allegiance to King Jesus and commit our whole day and our whole life to following his will and his purposes. Well, it's quite a display that Jesus gives. And after this kind of display of kingship, when you're reading the story for the first time, you're wondering, well, what's going to happen next? And in verse 11 it appears that there's a bit of an anticlimax. He comes riding into Jerusalem on this donkey, cloaks and palms being thrown in front of him, him making it obvious who he is, receiving the praise of the people. And then it just says he went to the temple, he had a look around, and then he went back to Bethany. It makes you wonder, why did he do that? Isn't it strange that after this amazing, and we call it the triumphal entry, he just goes into the temple. Well, what's going on here? Well, in one sense, Jesus is going in to take in everything in the temple, planning what he was going to do tomorrow and the battle ahead. But also, Mark is telling a story here, and it's part of the drama. This is, if you like, the calm before the storm, because the next part of the Gospel of Mark has a massive focus on the temple. Not just the bit we read tonight, but a lot of things take place at the temple. It's a key location of the next part of the book. And Mark points that out. And it's interesting as well that Jesus the king doesn't go to Herod's palace. He goes to God's temple, which is really 
where his throne is, where God rules. And as he goes to the temple the next day, we see how Jesus teaches us how to worship. And in the temple, we see the wrong way to worship the king. Let's read verses 12 to 18. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. As we look at this section on the wrong way to worship the king, we begin with something very strange. The only destructive miracle that Jesus performs. So he's hungry and he sees a fig tree in the distance. So from a distance, he sees this tree. And apparent, from what I've been reading about fig trees, they're strange in that sometimes uh, the fruit appears before the leaves, but sometimes if there are leaves, there is no fruit. But if there's a, the tree has a leaf, you would assume that there was a fruit there. But it was not the season for figs. So when Jesus saw the tree, it was exciting because it looks inviting. It looks like there's fruit. It was, if you like, a nice surprise. There was an open invitation for fruit, but when Jesus reached it, there was none. It wasn't so exciting. It was not the season for figs and there was none. And then he does something strange. He curses it. Now this may seem odd. I mean, does Jesus have a sudden outburst of frustration because he's hungry and he has this tree with no fruit? Paula tells me of a time when she went to KFC and they ran out of chicken. They were open, but there was no chicken. And Paula says to them, well, what, what is the point of you even being open? Apparently, I think she says they had fish, which is crazy, isn't it? But, you know, it's frustrating, isn't it? If, I, if you get a KFC and you expect chicken and there's no chicken, you wonder why it's even open. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Is he just annoyed? Well, no, that's not the case. Everything, remember, that Jesus does here is planned and controlled meticulously. You see, the fig tree is a picture of the temple. The cursing and the destruction of the tree bookends the cursing and destruction of the temple. In the Old Testament, the fig tree was sometimes used as a picture of Israel. And here it's used as a picture of the temple Jesus was about to go into. From a distance, the fig tree looks good. It has leaves, but no substance. From a distance, when people looked at the temple, it looked good. It looked amazing. It looked the place to go to worship God. It had the leaves of profession, but we'll see that it was no fruit. Like the fig tree is deceptive by looking like it has fruit. The temple is deceptive there in making people think that it is the way to God when really it isn't because it lacks substance. 
Jesus was hungry for fruit in Israel, but was not finding it even in the place where it should be, in the temple. So this is not Jesus getting annoyed, but this is prophetic. And as the disciples hear him say it, and this is important because it says the disciples heard him say it, it is telling us that it's a miracle for the benefit of them. And as he goes into the temple, we see the lack of substance that Jesus is talking about. Now Jesus, it says, went into the temple courts. And I've got a picture of what, um, a diagram rather, of the temple courts. Because it was a bit like an onion, if you like. In that you peeled layers back and you got closer uh, to the centre. The more, rather than more potent, I suppose, like an onion. Um, in theory, the more holier. Okay? So, in the centre was the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go once a year on the Day of Atonement. Then there was the court of the priests, where only the priests could go. Then there was the court of Israel, where only the Jewish men could go. Then there was the court of the women, where only Jewish women could go. And then outside, there was the court of the Gentiles, where everyone else who wasn't Jewish could go. And the further you went in, the holier it got, and the penalty for trespassing any of these areas, if you weren't supposed to go in there, was death. The Romans permitted the Jews to kill Gentiles who went further than their court. And there were signs written in different languages so everyone was clear that if they went and trespassed, there would be death. And this is all important to note, as we'll see in a minute, because Jesus, when it says he went to the temple court, it was to the court of the Gentiles, that he went. And in what should have been a place of worship and holiness, we find some things that made Jesus angry. When people entered the courts to sacrifice, the temple rulers and stewards would decide whether the animal that you brought with you was good enough. And if it wasn't good enough, you had to buy one from others that were there. So when people often bought their animals, the temple, the temple uh, stewards would find something wrong with your animals so you could buy one from the temple. And the price of those animals were uh, ratcheted up, a bit like if you go and exchange foreign currency. If you go to the airport, they rip you off, don't they? But if you get it beforehand at a decent place, you can get a better deal. Some people didn't want to carry animals, so brought them uh, to the temple, and this is exactly what happened. The same thing it says was with the dove sellers. People that bought doves, usually the poor, were to sacrifice. There were also, it says, money changers there. People who changed money because you had to pay a temple tax and it had to be in the currency uh, of the temple. And of course, when you could exchange the money, they would rip people off. This was a racket. There was dishonesty going on in the temple. But also, there was irreverence. The temple should not be used for buying and selling, even at non-inflated prices. But also there were people, it says, carrying merchandise through the court. Basically, the, the temple was, was massive. It was a huge building. And if you were walking um, past it, or so you, you have to go around it, and it was a lot quicker just to go through it. So labourers and people carrying different things would find it easier just to walk through the middle of the temple rather than go around the outside. And they would use God's house as a mere convenience. And so Jesus, in an act of supernatural power, 
overpowered these people and showed what is wrong through his anger and through what he says. There was a move of God to clear up the worship or destroy that kind of worship in the temple. And Jesus tells them what they should be and what they are using a quote from Isaiah chapter 56 where there's a prophecy about all nations worshipping God. It says the temple should be a place of prayer for all nations. And this temple lacked prayer and it lacked outreach because Gentiles were banned from uh, parts of the temple from God's place. It was self-reliant, self-indulgent, self-focused. Selfish worship that looked good on the outside but had nothing good in it at all. And Jesus hates external, showy religion without heart. Instead, instead of having a house of prayer for all nations, they'd made it in to a den of robbers, referring to the extortion that was going on. But also to the way they robbed people spiritually of being able to worship God. They were like the fig tree, all leaves, but no fruit. What do people find when they come to Pelsall Evangelical Church? They'd better find Jesus here. Because Jesus hates religion that is fancy and unfruitful, showy but no substance. We need to guard against this. We have a great building, we have great musicians, we have sound preaching, we have children's clubs, we have all these good things. But if they don't lead us to Jesus, then they don't honour God at all and he hates them. They should aid us to worship God, not trivialise him. People need to see Jesus when they come here, through our welcome, through our demeanour, through our attitude, our attitude to worship, through our application of the preaching. And for the areas where this is not the case, we need a move of God to drive out those areas that are not honouring him. It's a frightening thought if you think about it, isn't it? But if we bring it a bit closer to home, what would we find if we looked at your life closely? Is there fruit? Is there substance to you? We must not spend our lives cultivating an external show of piety and goodness. We need to be cultivating a relationship with our Father in Heaven. A friend of mine once said something that I'll always remember. He said, who you are in private is who you are. Who you are in private is who you are. We can show all sorts of good things externally, but who we are when we're alone in our room at home or with our thoughts is who we really are. Don't harbour sin in your life secretly and allow it to desecrate the temple of your body. Don't worship God on the outside only. Don't trivialise worship by just singing songs without thinking about what you're saying. Don't trivialise worship by listening to loads of sermons but not applying one word of what is said. Don't trivialise worship by saying you love your uh, member of the church and then just go and talk about them behind their back or think evil of them. And for those things in our life that, uh, 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 where we look like we just have loads of leaves but there's no substance, we need a move of God to come through our church, to come through our lives, to clear out all of that rubbish 
that is in there. All of that dishonesty, all of that greed, all of that triviality, all of those secret sins. And it's painful when that happens, but will you pray for it? Will you pray that God will come into your life and clear out all the rubbish, all the trivial stuff, all the things that you want no one else to know? Because God knows. And if God is going to use us as a church, as individuals, we need him to clear out that rubbish that is in our hearts. Friends, let's not be all leaves, but no fruit. And when the chief priests heard this, it says they wanted to kill him. They feared him. They feared what he would do. How he would threaten their way of life and their livelihoods. Because these people were making money, weren't they? They would lose that if it was all cleared up. And I wonder, is that how you feel? When you hear how I have just tried to apply that, when I say that you need to have substance and fruit to your life, do you feel like these chief priests? Are you scared about what God might do? Of who might know? About how you have to change? About how painful that that might be? But it's a good thing. When God moves, it is a good thing. And in verses 19 to 25, we see the right way to worship. What God does when his temple is clean. Let's look at verses 19 to 25. It says, When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. So in the evening they came and left the city and in the morning they saw the fig tree that Jesus had cursed but now it had withered. Remember this is a picture of the temple and here is the flow if you like of what Jesus is saying. The fig tree is cursed, the temple is cursed, the fig tree is destroyed and we see the temple destroyed. In AD 70 uh, Emperor uh, 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 Titus came in completely destroyed Jerusalem the temple was gone and it's never been rebuilt it was destroyed just as Jesus predicted now the temple was, was central to the Jewish worship to them this was how you worship God where you go so destroying it to the Jews including the disciples effectively they were thinking well this is disabling access to God So Peter's exclamation in verse 21 is is of shock. He's basically saying, well, how then do we worship God? Where will we worship God? The the temple is going to be destroyed. And Jesus then explains that it's not a building that you need. He explains the right way to worship God. First of all, he responds, have faith in God. 
You don't need the temple, you need Jesus. You don't need the bricks and, the, and, and all those things. You need to have faith in God. The Jews had faith in their temple, but the faith needs to be in God. Faith in God is trusting wholly in him and following what he says, knowing that it's best for our lives. It's a, it's a Godward focus, directed at him and his glory, not external things. The old temple was showy, but had no substance. But faith in God, faith has substance, because it trusts in a God who has substance and proves himself again and again and again. Now the original temple, it says, was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. But the new temple that Jesus describes here really is this. Jesus says anyone, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, anyone can come to pray and mountains can be moved. Now Jesus here is using a hyperbolic statement. and Most likely he's pointing to a mountain like Mount Zion or the Mount of Olives that is close by as he's speaking. But the, but the point is that God can do things which seem impossible and insurmountable to us when we believe in him. Now that uh, phrase in verse 24, that we'll receive anything if we believe, isn't just some mystical belief, as if, uh, if you just say, Lord, I believe, I believe, I believe, and you, you keep uh, chanting it or something like that. It, that's not what it means, but it's about the, it begins with faith in God. When we have faith in God, we pray not selfishly, but with God's will in mind. And if this is the case, we have prayers answered. So the new temple is the house of faith. It's the house of prayer. And finally, it says it's a house of forgiveness. In the old temple, people came to worship by offering sacrifices to atone for sin. But in the new temple, sin is atoned for by the sacrifice Jesus has made for sin. So in a sense, there is forgiveness in this temple because Jesus has taken our penalty. But this goes further. Jesus goes on from this by, by telling us that we must also, therefore, forgive others. Now, is, this, is Jesus saying here, then, that if you don't forgive someone else, then you aren't forgiven. You lose your salvation. Well, no, he's not saying that. What he's saying is that unforgiveness is a sin. And Psalm chapter 66 and verse 18 says, If I cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So there's a sense that because unforgiveness is a sin and we harbour that in our heart, God's not going to bless us with answered prayer. One of the conditions, if you like, of, of God answering our prayers is that we are forgiving other people. We can't expect God to be blessing our life if we are bitter and unforgiving in our hearts. But the principle here is that the church, which is the new temple of God, the living temple, God dwells in his people now, is a place of mercy and a place of forgiveness. A church is strange, isn't it? Because we're a group of people that if you like, if, if, we, if we weren't Christians, we wouldn't know each other. And most likely, many of us probably would never want to know each other and probably wouldn't even get on with each other. And from time to time, that means that in a church, we do have fallings out sometimes, and arguments, and uh, frustrations. But we need to learn to forgive one another. 
We need to be a house of mercy and forgiveness. So if God takes away from this place the chairs, if God decides to take away our building, if God decides to take away the pulpit or the music and any other number of things, what will remain as Pelsall Evangelical Church? Because we are not a building. A church is not a building. It is a people. The living temple of God. And if God removes all these things, what remains? What remains is faith in God. Prayer and forgiveness. So how does this show itself? Well, we need to have living faith. We need to, as a church, as church people, act out in trust what we claim the Bible says to be true. We have to act out in trust what we believe the Bible says to be true. Not just coming and listening and going home and forgetting, acting out what we claim to believe the Bible says is true. And we, um, I, I believe all of the Bible is true. It's trustworthy in everything it says. So when it tells me to do something, I must do it. And that takes faith in God. We need to be a house of prayer. I might step on toes here, but I don't care. It means turning up to prayer meetings. To pray. Because prayer is a priority in the church. You know, in the Bible, in, in the temple here that God is talking about, there are no prescribed programs in the church except that of prayer. That's the only program that Jesus prescribes here prayer. So it's a vital ministry of the church. A church should be a house of prayer for all nations. And it shows itself, we show ourselves as the temple of God by showing mercy and forgiveness and reaching out to one another in love. But as you bring this to a personal level, how are you to worship God aright? Well, we need in our own lives to have changed hearts. In the temple in Jesus' day, there was, there was no repentance. There was no hunger after God. And that's what we need to pray for, isn't it? We need to be serious about turning from sin and desiring to be in the presence of God. We need to battle for hearts that are God-focused. We need to have prayer lives that are genuine, seeking God. We need to be loving people. And if we do these things, that is what Jesus says is the right way to worship. Not just leaves on a tree, but no substance. We need faith in God. We need fervent and genuine prayer. And we need to be loving each other with mercy 